Hello and welcome to the Mind Springs podcast with me, Alastair Appleton. I hope you enjoy what you hear, and if you'd like to find out more about us, then visit mind-springs.org. What I thought would be interesting this evening is that I'm going to talk for about 40 minutes, and then we'll have some time for questions, and maybe a a sort of group discussion, since a lot of you are kind of familiar with the, the terrain of mindfulness. But what's been very interesting to me over my career (coughs) is uh, to sort of see the explosion of interest in mindfulness from being a quite obscure Buddhist practice to a kind of universal and worldwide marketing phenomena. Um, And to explore some of the ways in which people (coughs) use mindfulness or some of the ways we we think about mindfulness uh, that are accurate and some of them that are less than less accurate. And particularly in my work as a therapist, thinking about ways in which we can use mindfulness in, in places and times and situations which maybe are not entirely suitable. There's an there's a underswell, a sort of groundswell of, of opinion that sort of mindfulness is the wonder panacea. That everybody, anybody can do mindfulness and wherever you do it, it's going to like cure everything. I haven't yet seen a book saying it cures cancer, but I'm sure there's one in the pipeline. I did look a, a bit of... Um, uh, I mean, I've done quite a lot of... I didn't want to make it too technical, so I've, I've written quite a few things about the more technical side of it, but I did, uh, did have a quick look on Amazon as I was on the train down to Cardiff today, and uh, when I put in mindfulness, there were 51,360 results, and, and 17,677 of them were books. I don't think that can't be right. <coughs> there are 17,000 books on it. But there are 151 apps as well. So, like, phone apps. But I, what was intriguing to me is when I looked at the first, the top ten... Hi. When I looked at the top ten um, titles for mindfulness on Amazon, the, number three was the Ladybird Book of Mindfulness, <laughs> which, is a, which is a parody. I have that. Um, number five was a colouring book on mindfulness. Uh, and then Paul, John Kabat-Zinn, who's really the, 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 grand, the granddaddy of like, modern mindfulness, only came on number 20. He was only one before Cats, 70 Designs to Help You De-Stress and Learn Mindfulness. So um, I was kind of a- amazed at the, kind of the spread of, of titles and shocked, really, at some of them, because one, I think, I don't remember which number it was, but it was a mindfulness journal... How to find peace and calm wherever you are. And then, mindfulness for women, declutter your mind. Which surely is a little bit sexist, I'm not sure, I think that's a little bit offensive. Um, and then mindfulness for creativity. So, there's basically mindfulness for everything. Um, and I, I particularly took exception with the mindfulness, how to, how to find peace and calm wherever you are. Because it strikes me that this is actually quite a radical misreading of what mindfulness is. And we'll, we'll come round to this in a, a second. But I just thought it might be quite nice for you uh, to, to turn to your neighbour, or you know, a little group of three maybe, and just see if you could come up with a working definition of what you think mindfulness, and if you've never done it before, you can just earwig what other people say. So just to have a little discussion about, well, what do you, what, how would you describe mindfulness? What are the kind of salient points of mindfulness? Some of you are long-term practice, <coughs> practitioners, some of you are fairly new to it. So just sort of pool your resources, and then we'll kind of scribble some things up on the board.
Yeah, I mean, these are, these are all... Uh, uh, you can see it's a very vast uh, spread of different things. It's, you can already get a sense, particularly if you've never encountered it before, this is like a big thing. We're talking about a big issue. And it's very interesting how mindfulness, the word mindfulness has sort of come to kind of balloon to take in, I mean, this is a lot, oneness, self-control, you know, awareness of the body, environment, self, other mind states, ground, it is, it's a lot, it's a, it's a big thing. So you can see, how, you start to wonder how a colouring book of cats is, is really kind of connected to mindfulness in this way. <clears throat> I think one of the interesting things about it is that there's been an appetite in the current climate for something, something because we live in an extremely accelerated and extremely stimulating world, something to grab hold of. Because it's a very, I think it's a very valid question. <laughs> it's a very valid question. Yes, that was a good example. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, we live in a very overstimulated world. We all have these things. <laughs> we all have these things, and they do. They can really overstimulate us. And it's perhaps in response to that that mindfulness has become such a, a great thing, because it's a very valid question. Why now? Why not in the sixties? Why not in the eighties? Why not in the, you know, forties? Why now is mindfulness such a big thing? Is it because we are so? stimulated and distracted almost to death, that we need desperately to have something to grab hold of. And what, what I think is interesting is the kind of inflation of meaning about mindfulness has in some way taken it away from where it's most useful. Because nothing can really do all the things that we kind of ask mindfulness to do. And so I thought it'd be quite useful to, <clears throat> to go back to the very kind of beginnings of, of, of mindfulness and the sort of very basic concepts that it began with, and sort of just have a quick canter through its development, particularly in the last of uh, 20 years, before we start looking at what it is and what it isn't. Um, there's some wonderful definitions, and we can come to that in a, in a moment. But I thought it would be quite interesting to wind back, because I first encountered mindfulness over 20 years ago when I started uh, meditating. When I started meditating in a particular, uh, well, actually, the school of meditation... Uh, from which mindfulness comes, which is Theravadan-style Buddhism. So this is the, if you like, the very oldest style of Buddhism, and uh, now it flourishes in places like Burma and Thailand. But in, in England there's a, a wonderful kind of community of what they call the Thai Forest Sangha monks and nuns. And uh, that was my first encounter with Buddhism. Uh, and the most... Uh, impressive thing I thought about them was the very the great clarity and precision of their practice and thinking and they take you know most of their prompts from the earliest collection of the Buddhist teaching which is called the Pali Canon and the Pali Canon is really the sort of if you like the textbook for if you, if you want to look at the kind of Buddhist roots of, me, of, of mindfulness, that's where we would look because this was compiled like a hundred years after the Buddha's death, so two and a half 2,400 years ago. Um, and it has several long discourses on, on mindfulness, amongst other things. And I'm not for sure if you've, I've got to go into too much detail, but uh, in, in that form of Buddhism, they, they talk about the eightfold path. <coughs> there are eight paths that sort of travel simultaneously towards enlightenment. It's like an eight-lane eight motorway towards nirvana. 
And most of them are to do with behaviour, so it's right livelihood or right sort of action, right thought. <coughs> but two of them are about meditation. One is right samadhi and one is right sati. So these are the two words. Sati is the, is the Pali word for mindfulness. And the, the big, the big um, sutra, the big discourse or the teaching that the Buddha gives is the Satipatthana Sutta, which he said that if he could teach for the rest of his life without ta- only taking breaths for, for um, meals and sleeping, it would not be long enough to extol the virtues of the Satipatthana Sutta. So this, he says, is the one vehicle that will take you straight to Nirvana if you practice uh, methodically. So it's you know it gets a big good good press in the in the in the Theravadan sutras. But sati, it's interesting when you go back to the the sutras. Sati mindfulness is really is the act of keeping your mind on one thing. It's the ability to focus your mind on that blue of that chair, for example, or those curtains. It's the the mental faculty of training the mind onto something uh, and, and knowing it. So one of the great teachers in that tradition, Ajahn Chah, likens it to the hand. So sati is like the hand. So it's like the hand that picks up the phone. But he points out that pretty much all animals have that, like a cat chasing a mouse has sati. You know, it's like or, you know, a, a, a sniper training his you know, gun on someone's face has sati. They have that ability to focus. <clears throat> so what you need is you need to have... You, you have sati and then you have what they call sampajanya. So sampajanya is... Um, it's sort of like the, the bigger picture. So he, he likens it to the arm. So having just a hand is no use unless you have an arm to move it in the right direction. So it's dis- what they call discriminating awareness. So in the case of, in the, case of the cat eating the, the mouse, you know, that's, that's focused, but it's not very nice for the mouse. So the discriminating awareness is when you can step back and go, OK, you know, I can shoot that person in the head, but that's not very good for my karma or for, you know, for that person. Certainly not for that person. And so then he, says, he goes further and says, well, you know, the arm and the hand are also not very useful unless they're attached to a body. And the body is what is called panya, which is um, pranya in Sanskrit, which is wisdom. So wisdom is the understanding of the biggest picture, i.e. that we're not the centre of the universe, nothing lasts forever, and most things <coughs> are not designed to make us happy. This is like a you know, very Buddhist um, way of thinking about it. But like, the biggest picture allows us to move our arm and use our hand in the best way. So that this is the very basic idea of sati, Sati is a, is a focus, but in the context of a bigger picture. So it's focused with discriminating awareness, and the discriminating awareness has some wisdom behind it. So that those three things make sure that you pick things up precisely. So it's interesting also to contrast <coughs> Sati to Samadhi. So if you think about meditation as a whole... 
So most meditation that we uh, practice today comes out of the incredible blossoming of human brilliance that was the, the in fact, the pre-Buddhist uh, yogic practices. So this is three, four thousand years ago in India, an extraordinary blossoming of uh, practices, meditation, samadhi, um, yoga as well. <clears throat> and almost all of these spiritual traditions flowed through Buddhist periods, through Hindu periods, into the present day. And the Buddha was very much embedded in that, those traditions. So, in fact, there's not a great deal of teaching. In the, in, you know, when you look at the Pali canons div- divided into three, one is an extraordinary bunch of Buddhist psychology, the <coughs> Abhidharma, and another one is a great big batch of rules about being a monk or nun. And then the, the sutras are these, again, huge volumes and volumes of the Buddha's 40 years of teaching. And in, in, in those sutras, actually, there's only two or three that do actually talk about meditation, you know, or certainly about sati in any detail. The great majority of, of the sutras are about understanding how perception works, how consciousness arises, how suffering arises, how we should behave with each other, things like that. <clears throat> so there's not a great deal of direct teaching about meditation, because it was kind of assumed that everyone knew how to do it. It was so much in the in the in the air, but es- essentially you can see three streams of meditation coming out of that extraordinary um, blossoming of wisdom. So one is sati, that we'll t- talk about in detail, and the other is what's called samadhi. These are the two um, of the eight-lane highway, and the other one is bhavna. So this is a very general, obviously, but this is a useful, I think, definition because sometimes we can get a bit muddled about what exactly the goal of the practice is. So bhavna, or cultivation, is what we, today we would call visualisation. So, for example, the classic one is, you know, if you're feeling very anxious, you imagine that you're floating on a nice Caribbean sea in the sun and the birds are singing and the waves are lapping against your skin. And the, the, the thinking mind creates a mind state, a positive mind state. So we're using the thinking mind imagery <coughs> to create a, a positive mind state. And if you go up into the shrine room, you'll see all these extraordinary, um, beautiful tankers of deities in, uh, in the Tibetan tradition. And the Tibetan te- tradition takes this bhavana very far by allowing you to visualize yourself as a four-armed deity with eight with eyes in your hands and your feet, emanating love in infinite directions, and your heart is a, full of mantra. You know, it can be very, very complicated, Bhavna. But the basic idea is that you're using your thinking mind, you're harnessing your thinking mind to generate positive mind states, shifts in your, in your consciousness. Um, samadhi is is what we would now call concentration practice or absorption practice. So it's where we, so we can, you can illustrate it like this. Here's the here and now. And samadhi is like a, you're focusing all your concentration onto one point. So that point might be a mantra, or it might be a candle flame, or it might be your breath could be anything. And the goal of, of samadhi is to drop down into what's known as jhanas, which are states of, of enormous bliss and union with the world. 
you know, with the universe. So you, you concentrate, you concentrate, and you, it's like you drop down into this uh, extraordinarily embodied, vast, blissful state. And so this samadhi practice is pretty much it's a bit out of fashion now. Mindfulness got all the limelight. And that's partly because samadhi is difficult, and samadhi involves saying no. It's like saying no to distractions and training your mind to focus one-pointedly until you drop through to this, uh, this, this state of quite very profound oneness. So this is often what you, people get confused when they, when they rock up for a, for a meditation course. If, you, if, you, if you're teaching mindfulness, I'm sure you've, you've encountered this. And people say, oh, I can't, do, I can't meditate because I can't clear my mind. You know, I can't. And if you're a mindfulness teacher, you're like, well, you're not meant to clear your mind. You're meant to, be sort of, <laughs> you're meant to enjoy your thoughts and be open to your thoughts. Because many people associate my, meditation with this, that they have to get rid of everything and just focus on one thing. And I personally love this practice and, and made a bit of a crusade to bring it back because I think in this day and age, this is precisely the skill that we need to, to learn. We need to be more embodied. We need to ha- generate states of bliss within our own body. But anyway, I digress. Um, the uh, confusion perhaps beca- comes because the diagram for Sati looks very similar. Here's the here and now. But in sati, <coughs> sorry, in mindfulness, what we do is we, we use, a, we could use the breath, this is again why it gets confusing, we could use the breath as an anchor, something to hold us in the here and now. So you might use the breath or the sounds of the room or any number of things. <coughs> but the purpose is quite different. Because in mindfulness, we are looking to sit nice and steady in the here and now, so we can open up into everything that's happening. So whereas this is quite deselective, we're deselecting all the things that are not the one-pointed focus, here this is very pro-selective, like we're opening up to everything. Anything that happens in our experience, that is the subject matter or the kind of the focus of mindfulness. We are <coughs> we're sitting steady in the present moment and we're opening up to, the, to everything that's happening in the here and now. So this is where the concept of non-judgmental that uh, we mentioned here comes, non-judgmental, and being aware of all of these different things and being present. So we're being present, which is true here as well, but we're being present here with a different outcome. (coughs) Here we're being present in order to open up to everything in a non-judgmental, very expansive way. Here we're being present in order to kind of focus down on one thing and disappear into a a sort of transcendental state. Does does that make sense? So this is is where a lot of confusion comes because there's there's not really much clarity and people often think that they're going to be expected to do this, when actually mindfulness is more about doing this. <clears throat> and it's also one of the great challenges of mindfulness. Because if we, want, if we spin on, spin on 2,000 years, I'm missing out quite a lot of, <laughs> 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 kind of interest, interesting developments. <coughs> 
Because obviously then we have like the, all the streams of Buddhism in Japan and China, like which is what they call the Mahayana, and then all the stuff in Tibet, which is the Vajrayana. So obviously it goes a, a lot further. But I'm now spinning on to the 1970s. <clears throat> so a lot of uh, baby boomers, American baby boomers, you know, children of wealthy families after the war, um, disgusted with consumer America, went to study in India. So people in the sort of uh, 1950s and 60s went over to India after the war and and studied with Zen masters in Japan or with Thai uh, masters in Thailand. So, for example, the the founding father of the uh, Amaravati and Chittas monastery, Ajahn Sumedho, was a a naval officer in a, in the American. Um, Navy, who after the war was over, left the left the navy and went to study with Ajahn Chah. So Ajahn Sumedho is like a he's about six foot seven, still alive. It's been his nineties now. Eighty three, is he? Okay, very very. And Ajahn Chah was famously tiny. Yeah, yeah, more like a duck. So, <laughs> so there you go. So Ajahn Chah. Um, took him under his wing, sort of weirdly took him under his wing, and, and he became one of the, the great practitioners in, in, uh, the, in the UK. Lots of wonderful stories about those two. But under, under Ajahn Chah particularly, which was a sort of reformist movement in Thailand, um, a lot of the baby boomers in America, so people like Jack Cornfield and uh, Joseph, Joseph Goldstein and John Kabat-Zinn, importantly, all sort of were influenced by that school of, of Buddhism, which is going back to what we were talking about, about the sati and the samadhi and the sort of very simple practice. And then, not surprisingly, they, they had extremely good experiences and came back into countercultural 60s America, um, full, of, full of enthusiasm. And then, over the next 20 years started to kind of formulate and publish and work in various sort of modalities, bringing, trying to bring the concepts that they'd experienced with, uh, in the religious communities of, of Thailand into the secular West. And the most uh, dynamic of those was undoubtedly John Kabat-Zinn, who worked in uh, Massachusetts and started a program of uh, what he called mindfulness-based stress reduction. And this was with people with chronic pain, primarily. And so MBSR introduced the model which most of us use, which is an eight-week program which uh, sort of stripped of all its Buddhist um, background, looked at ways of using mindfulness uh, to work with people with chronic pain. And when you go back, when we look back at this, this diagram, you can start to see how tricky this is. Because if you're in chronic pain, the last thing you really want to do is sit with it. But the kind of genius of mindfulness is that it doesn't look for the short-term solution. It's, you know, the Buddha was uh, a genius, uh, and he was looking for the long-term solution. And he saw that actually trying to avoid pain, avoid your experience, you know, change your experience co com constantly, this is the cause of stress. 
this is the thing that actually upsets us. Not the pain, but all the kind of maneuvering and like avoidance and like drinking and self-medicating that you do around the pain. This is what causes the problems. And so John Kabat-Zinn took that concept and applied it to chronic pain with astonishing results. Basically trained people over eight weeks to develop a relationship with their pain that was not punitive or judgmental or kind of trying to get rid of it, but that was kind of more compassionate and more holding and got rid of all what the, the Buddha calls the second arrow. So you get shot once by another arrow, well, but you should get shot once by one arrow, which is painful enough. And then a very expert marksman shoots that arrow with another arrow. And this is the, the, the image he describes for all the extra pain, suffering that we put on top of the pain that comes naturally in life. So, you know, unfortunately, some people do have chronic pain, or you might have broken your leg, or you might have, had, you know, you might have some terminal disease. These are, you know, things to about having a body, essentially. And then there's all the mental stuff that we put on top of that. I shouldn't be me. Why me? This is so unfair. I want it to go away. Why won't it go away? And so this, this, this uh, system was a very brilliant uh, way of taking the ideas of, of, of Buddhism and packaging them in a way that would appeal to everyone, particularly in the extremely Christian Midwest, uh, in America. Um, and uh, it was a model that was then taken up by uh, Mark Williams in Oxford and his team of brilliant um, practitioners and became MBCT. Sure, you're familiar with all these. So that's mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. So Mark Williams then married the ideas, the formula of um, MBSR, with cognitive therapy, <coughs> so behavioural therapy. And this was not designed with chronic pain, but with depression in mind. So depression, as I'm sure you know, is is one of the greatest worldwide um, health problems. More, I think, more more days were lost to depression than any other illness in the, in the UK last year. So the, and the, the likelihood, if you have depression, the likelihood that you'll get depression again was always measured around 90%. And so the holy grail for psychologists was to try and get that recidivism, to get that relapse likelihood down. But nothing, antidepressants, psychotherapy, nothing touched it until Mark Williams came along and did these double-blind uh, double tests, and it got it down to 50%, which was like a, <coughs> a miracle for, for, the, for the depression world. And so MBCT is now a, a nice, uh, proved uh, practice for the NHS, uh, and spawned a, a, a numerous other kind of uh, attempts to, to, to use mindfulness to deal with depression, uh, to do with addiction and... OCD and different things, with, with in, in research terms, limited success. The, when you look strictly at the research, the only ones that really show really robust figures are MBSR and MBCT. There's been lots of other things, for example, um, DBT, which is Dialectical Behavioural Therapy with a woman called Marsha Linnum, which is used for, has shown very great effect. In fact, it's also a nice approved NHS um, service for particularly women with bipolar um, women with uh, ta, slipped out of my head borderline personality borderline personality disorder this is uh, uh, nice approved and then there's another one called ACT 
action commitment therapy, which is uh, also used as mindfulness, which has shown very successful uh, results as well. So these, if you like, are the modern manifestations of, of mindfulness in the sort of uh, the- therapeutic world. And, and they, some of them have shown very strong results, but not all of them have uh, done as well. Although there was, a te- there was a study in 2010 that showed that um, NBCT proved, I think, more effective than antidepressants in relapse prevention which seems like an extremely uh, good indicator. Anyway, so, so it's been rolled out in all sorts of different places, but what I wanted to spend the, the, the last bit of this uh, talk talking about was some of the ways in which it, where it's successful, what, what we can use mindfulness for, and some of the areas where perhaps we shouldn't use it, because it's, it's, it's not universally um, applicable. So just, just, just to give us the, um, a sort of working definition, the one that I would like to use is actually Rob, Rob Nairn's definition, which is mindfulness is... Well, I've sort of tweaked it slightly. It's actually not Rob Nairn's for us. <laughs> I'm sure he wouldn't mind. Is experiencing... Experiencing what you're experiencing without judgment but with kindness. So it's back to that idea of the So you're, you're sitting in the present moment and you're experiencing everything that's coming up for you. Your pain, your pleasure, your joy, your toothache, your period pain, your being in love, <clears throat> the colours coming through the window, the, the, feeling a bit hot, whatever. Everything in that moment, it's like you take a core sample of your life in that, in that instant and you accept it. So acceptance is one of the key ideas of mindfulness, that you don't try and change it, you don't run away from it, you don't hide your head in the sand, you accept, you start from where you are. And so this is, a, this is an extremely good uh, practice to do when uh, you are suffering from self-delusion. When you think, oh, you know, I'm happy, you know, I'm happy, I'm happy, but I'm also like drinking two bottles of wine a night and I'm uh, you know, beating my children up. You know, okay, so clearly you're not happy, so perhaps you need to kind of do this kind of litmus test every day to kind of just see what's really going on for you. So it's the opposite of burying your head in the sand. So in this sense, it's, it's very good for general mental uh, health because you're no longer deluding yourself all the time. Which one was that called again, sorry? Sorry? Which one was that called again, please? This is mindfulness. Thank you. So... Um, the, the important thing, I think, to recognise in mindfulness, however, is there are two poles to mindfulness. And it's included in that, in that definition because one of the key factors in mindfulness is this acceptance, but also this ability to step back. So that you're, you're aware of everything that's going on, but by the same token, you have this ability to take a step back and see it more clearly. This is one of the 
the main factors of mindfulness. Being in the present, being aware, <coughs> being able to step back and accepting. These are the sort of four kind of pillars of mindfulness. But within that, there are two poles, which I call the diffusing and the... Oh, what do I call the other one? <laughs> Immersive. <laughs> so, this is an interesting balance with mindfulness practice. Because on the one hand, mindfulness is about being fully there, mindfulness. You want to fully experience your life, feel your body, feel your emotions, feel the colour of the, you know, feel the warmth of the sun on your skin, feel, you know, enjoy your thoughts. So this is the kind of, it's a sort of big, beefy, amplitudinous, um, it's not a word, anyway, um, uh, uh, sort of experience of life. So this is the more the immersive. So when you, you know, if you know the raisin exercise, when you kind of really, you taste the raisin and you put it in your mouth and you taste it and all you, you eat your food in this delicious way and everything kind of comes alive in relationship to how much attention you pay to it. And yet there's also this part in mindfulness, this is about stepping back, okay? So you have your thoughts and your thinking and if you're having, you know, difficult or negative thoughts, there's not to get too immersed in them, not to get too stuck in them, but actually to have the skill of being able to just step back and go, this is not me. This is just a passing phenomena. In the same way that a bird flying over, making a noise, a thought going through my mind is, is, is also a passing phenomena. So this is the diffusing. So we're defusing from, this, uh, from these experiences. And these two poles are sort of contradictory, obviously, because one is about immersing yourself in the experience and being more fully there, and the other one is about stepping back so that you're not too swept away. And this is where we have to be careful about how we use it. Because if we're using mindfulness with somebody, or if we're encouraging a practitioner to, to, to work with mindfulness, and they're a sort of you know, the per sort of person that gets swamped by their emotions, gets completely kind of overwhelmed, and starts to cry all the time, or like if someone says something, they take it really personally, or, you know, they're, they're always kind of like just in raptures about everything. Then this poll may be counterproductive. This poll may actually, if you're, if you're dealing with someone uh, in a therapeutic or a semi-therapeutic kind of relationship, this poll is not such a good way to go. Because actually, what they need to do is they need to be able to step back more. They need to be able to step back more. So this is the idea behind uh, CBT, the uh, MBCT. Because people who are depressed are too immersed, too merged and fused with their depressive thoughts. So they need to be able to step back and say, these are just thoughts or just feelings. So this is, this is the kind of... <clears throat> Sorry, this, this poll has been emphasised quite heavily in, in mindfulness practice. However, there's a huge population, particularly British people, I don't want to be stereotypical, but it's a, sort of a European, Northern European thing, of people who are quite the opposite. They're not totally immersed. They're not completely kind of like, yes, I'm feeling everything. It's, they're the opposite. They're actually very detached and dismissive of the it's a, you know, attachment style, they're quite dismissive of their feelings and other people's feelings and intimacy and, you know, they, they don't really feel things and they don't kind of really get involved in, like, the world around them. It's all kind of very cerebral. In which case, this, this poll, 
is a mistake. And this is the one that I'm more interested in because what this poll very often merges into is this, dissociation. So dissociation is a psychological mechanism whereby we detach from experience. And in, in extreme cases, we do it to protect ourselves. So if we've had a traumatic shock, <clears throat> then we forget that we experienced that. You know, you, know, in, you know, when people have been abused, you have these terrible stories about they, don't, they, don't, they, just, they were floating on top of the, c- the ceiling while it happened. So they completely dissociate from the experience. And in dismissing people or people who are kind of very remote from their emotions, this dissociation can be very problematic. It means that you, you live like behind a play, pane of glass. And unfortunately, if you are that sort of person, and I'm speaking personally here because I was that sort of person when I came to meditation, then the diffusing aspect of mindfulness practice can be very alluring. Because when I started meditating, I was so uptight and so innerly cross and angry and irritated but outside, very kind of you know, pleasing. I worked in the television industry. I was all smiles and nice. But there was this huge, angry, molten, emotional nightmare going on inside. <clears throat> very unhappy. And, but, you know, I am quite, by birth and by family upbringing, I'm quite dismissive. I'm much more of the kind of like, <laughs> stepping back was very natural to me. So when I discovered, you know, Ajahn Sumedho and Ajahn Suchito, and they were like, okay, so you just sit and you, you don't talk to anyone and you kind of ball yourself off and you sit for hours and you kind of detach and step back and nothing is you. I was like, yes, this is great. So I went at it hell for leather for like you know ten years, like super, like, like what I call now my my Buddhist Nazi phase, where I was like super, you know, I didn't drink and I didn't do this, and I meditated for two hours a day, and I went on like two month retreats, and, and I was utterly unbearable to be around. Like all my friends were like, please stop doing this, you're awful, it's intolerable, I can't stand it anymore. Because essentially what I was doing is I was just using Buddhism as an excuse to, to dissociate more and more and more. And it took a lovely, you know, long relationship with a therapist for me to feel safe enough and um, heard enough to un- sort of unburden myself of all this stuff that before I'd just been sort of in a Buddhisty way, kind of um, keeping it a distance. So, and I, I encounter a lot of my clients as a psychotherapist also tend more towards the diffusing type, to more, sorry, more towards the dismissing, the kind of un- under-attached type. And so. So this sort of element of diffusing I wouldn't emphasise, because actually what they need to do is they need to, to be more than this. So very briefly, because as always I've talked on for far too long, um, there, I wanted to talk about there are, there are a few categories of people who I would not use mindfulness with, or certainly not this kind of diffusing. And, and those dismissive, detached types would be one. And another uh, segment is with people who are not um, are not able to or don't feel safe essentially, because safety is the fundamental uh, idea. I don't want to go too, too deep into this, but if you are feeling triggered, you can't meditate. 
you, you can't do mindfulness, basically, because the cortisol and adrenaline in your brain that's come from the kind of flight and fight mechanism will not allow you to be non-judgmental and open-hearted and warm, because that wants you to be black and white and get the hell out of there. So safety and relaxation <coughs> really is the precursor to, to mindfulness, which is why I often teach people how to do samadhi before I teach them how to do mindfulness. So safety is, uh, is a precondition. And also, you have to really respect that some people's minds and faculties are not in a place where they can do mindfulness. Not everybody can do it. If, you're, if people are very unstable or if um, they have a history of, or if, actually if they're on medication, a very strong medication, <coughs> uh, if, they have a, you know, if they're addicted or if they're under the influence of drugs, this is also they cannot do mindfulness. It's not possible. And trying to force people in that situation to do it only leads to more self-deception. There are a few other cases, but I don't want to get into too much kind of theoretical um, detail. But it's essentially this idea of being careful about uh, this diffusing pole of mindfulness uh, with certain populations who actually would use that as a way of dissociating further and further. Okay, I've talked for far too long and I'm losing my voice. So um, I thought it'd be quite nice just to open out that some of you are you know, practitioners with a lot of experience. Um, is there anything here that you vehemently disagree with? Because otherwise, that would be great to have an argument. Um, but otherwise, a nice, genteel, mindful discussion would also do. Uh, I've got some tea here, actually. Thank you. Yeah. Would you like another cup of tea? Um, yeah, I'd love another cup of tea. Thank you. Uh, black, I had blackberry and nettle. Bell thank you. Oh, no, right. black, blackberry and nettle, please. Okay. Do you want the bag in or out? No, I'll just I'll finish it. Blackberry nettle, please yes. let it be up there. It is there, yeah. <laughs> so, any questions? Any any comments? Any any points of departure? It's difficult. Um, so, it, I'm a psychotherapist. So, in my practice, I would be mindful about um, how to use or introduce somebody to mindfulness. Yeah. But because it is so generalised at the moment, and there are so many courses, it's difficult always to, to know whether the mindfulness courses are bearing this in mind. <coughs> yes. If people turn up, how would you know? It would be quite difficult. Yeah. There was all that piece in The Guardian a couple of weeks ago, two or three weeks yes. ago, about the negative aspects of mindfulness or the dangers involved in mindfulness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's quite a difficult one to manage, I think, because you want to encourage people to do a course, mm. um, but at the same time, you can't always be sure that the, the person running the course... This is, this is very true, yeah. yeah. And this is a problem uh, generally with the way that... Um, well, therapy, you know, therapy is not sort of regulated in our country, which is, you know, sometimes a good thing, sometimes a bad thing. But, um, you know, the, the, I mean, the huge, we were just talking about, I was talking to a friend of mine who's doing a course in, in London and paying £360 for an eight-week course, mm. which is like six times what I charge. I mean, this is it's a phenomenal markup, and you just think, there can't, there's no, there can't be that much better than mine. <laughs> you know, this, it's... Uh, 
it feels like there's an extraordinary explosion of probably money oriented you know this whole thing about Mac mindfulness you know that's just come as another commodity that people can kind of make money from which is, a, which is a great shame. But at the same time, there's been a lot of fantastic, you know, Andy Puddicombe's Mindspace app, Headspace of apps, sorry. You know, he's a wonderful practitioner for, out of our tradition here. Um, and, you know, that has really helped a lot, a lot of people. Um, so it's difficult to make a judgment. I mean, generally, it's amazing that, you know, minds, that uh, mindfulness is, you know, available on the NHS. I and mean, it's unthinkable 20 years ago that that would be the case. So I don't think we can be too critical. I think the interesting thing for therapists, <laughs> therapists, is um, you know some of those other modalities that I mentioned, the MBCT and all those other ones. You know, for example, oh, you know, if you do MBCT, that's a forty-five minute a day commitment plus a two-hour session every week. Uh, the DBT is like a commitment to twenty-two and a half hours of, of practice. Plus group work. It's a, it's an enormous um, ask of our clients to sign up for that. I mean, for forty five minutes. I mean, I'm, I, thank you so much. Welcome. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, so the uh, so most of us deliver. You know, therapists deliver. You know, fifty minute sessions once a week. So you can't really expect the person to spend forty five minutes of that like learning how to meditate. And the chances are that if you ask them to, they won't. So it's, 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 I think, more important that we, we bring our mindfulness of ourselves as therapists, what's going on in our body, what's going on in our emotions. It's a wonderful skill. Rather than expect them to be mindful of themselves and to be mindful of the space between us, so the interpersonal space. I would put it as kind of um, the mindfulness for cats or the you know, drawing books and all of these. There's something about that's worth because it's with all the social media and the distractions and everything actually sitting down and drawing is a mindful activity yeah. so because you're focusing and so it's, it's it's not necessarily a bad thing that people get a mindfulness drawing book because it's it's a few moments of calm before they answer the phone or go on yeah. Facebook or yeah, I would, I would argue, though, that it's not mindfulness. It's, it's a mindful moment. I don't think it's a mindful moment. In, in the strict yeah. term of sati, okay. it's, uh, it's relaxation. It's actually it's bordering on dissociation, I would say, in the same way that you know, playing Candy Crush or Angry Birds mm-hmm. really is, is... And there's nothing... I mean, we all dissociate all the time. There's nothing particularly wrong about it. There's no moral judgment on dissociation. But it feels to me that there's a tidal weight of dissociation running through the society because we are so stressed and so overstimulated by, essentially, by consumer culture. Because everywhere we look, everything we do, and now we have these mobile phones that are with us all the time, they're always demanding our attention and worrying us by, oh, God, I'm not, I haven't got enough friends or I haven't, no one's liked my photo or, like, Ugh. You know, it's this endless kind of engine of making us dissatisfied so that actually the only place where we get any rest is by completely dissociating and doing something very simple. And I actually don't think it is very restful because all you're doing is you're just narrowing your focus away from all the terrible turmoil and anxiety in your body into this tiny window uh, and actually, as soon as you stop doing it, 
I think I would question whether people actually do feel relaxed. I don't know, maybe you do it. Do you find it relaxing? <laughs> well, I find drawing relaxing. Drawing, yeah, but, but, but that the, sort of colouring in, yeah. I'm not well, so sure. I, I, I don't know. Some people might think that they're quite similar. I mean, I certainly would find drawing uh, mindful. As, I mean, what I often say to women, particularly, is making a cup of tea mindfully. And they, they, they might feel completely, I'm just thinking of one group where they felt completely harassed and multitasking and very responsible for so many things and no time to do mindfulness. Yeah. But got that whole sense of, ah, oh, I could make a cup of tea mindfully, yeah. I could be very present in doing that, yeah. and that might be the first step into recognising. Yeah. But that is mindful, yeah. Yes. Because that is immersing, that's widening your awareness, staying present and widening your awareness. Whereas, I, again, I, have, I, can't, I haven't done any research, but it made, I was slightly appalled by the sudden blossoming of mindful colouring books. One, because I don't think it's very mindful, and two, because it feels, it feels a bit dissociative. Exactly, yeah. Which is, which is the, is the peril of dissociation. The class. Exhausted as well from trying to avoid your thoughts while colouring. Yeah, you do. I did try a long time ago. Yeah. And it's exhausting. Yes. The classic, the horrifying but fascinating example of dissociation is the gambling industry. So in America, there was a wonderful book. I forget the name of the woman who wrote it. In America, the by far the largest income stream from gambling is one-armed bandits, fruit machines. Who knew? Fruit machines. And in, like, in the casinos, it's not all the glamorous blackjack and roulette. It's like millions and millions of people sitting in front of uh, one-armed bandits. And the research showed that people did not do that in order to win. They weren't interested in winning because, in fact, winning and having to bend down and collect the money out of the, the thing broke the dissociative trance. What they did it for was to completely meld themselves with the machine and zone out everything else in the world. And that this machine, the designers of the machines, these devilish designers of the machines, decided everything in order to facilitate that. So you no longer have to pull a bar, an arm, you just have to press a button. There's no, you know, the money just goes in and out of your credit card, so you don't actually get any winnings. And they are designed, and this is the phrase that chilled me to the bone, they are designed in order to play to extinction. And so people will just play and play and play until their credit card is empty, and then they suddenly wake up. They, they feel that they're in this kind of symbiotic, warm, you know, all I have to do is be with this machine, I don't have to worry about anything else, and then, bloop, your credit is exhausted, and then, bloop, they're bankrupt, they've spent all their kids' like welfare money. So this is the most horrible... And so some of the machines have even been designed so that they recognise regular players, and if you leave before your credit card is empty, it calls your name. It will say, it will say, Jennifer, Jennifer, why, why are you leaving? Come back. So as you leave the casino, it calls after you. The machine. How do you know my name's Jennifer? It's not. 
so, so that's, for me, that is the classic example, horrifying example of dissociation. That actually it's about, it's not being mindful, it's about being the opposite of mindful. I think I'm quite confused. I think it's, it's turned on, the head, on, on its head what I thought mindfulness was. Uh-huh. Is, is it a tool for 24 hours a day, or is it a tool for certain situations? What is it? Because, because I, I would have thought, the way I thought mindfulness was before, it's focusing on one thing to, say, in a, in a busy job, that I'm sure we all have, um, we're all spinning plates, and sometimes you think, just out of crap and I just need to focus on this otherwise I'm not going to get this done I'm doing this for 20% of the time and I need to give it 100% because I'm doing 10% there and 5% there and 40 there and I'm not realising I'm doing that so I thought mindfulness would be telling me more about how to zone in but it's actually looking at everything Yes, exactly. in a situation where you are plate spinning is mindfulness Maybe not the tool you should be using. Well, mindfulness is a tool, but it's not that tool. Because actually that tool is samadhi. That tool is focus. Which is why I think focus is really a a skill that we should all learn. Because it's actually because we can't focus that, you know, all these consumer companies make so much money out of us. Because they're like, we're like, okay, okay, okay. And, you know, we're always like spending money every time we're distracted. So, anyway. Um, But... The noticing that you're spinning plates and you're only giving 20% to think that's mindfulness. Mindfulness is the stepping back and going, wow, I'm really not paying attention to any of this. Am I, I'm not aware of my body. I'm not aware of anybody else in the room. And I, I'm actually, I'm all like stuck in my thoughts. That sort of panoptic view is mindfulness. So that snapshot where you're suddenly aware of everything. Except it's not not static, because one of the things about mindfulness is you're always noticing how things are shifting and changing. And it it is and it isn't a kind of static practice and a moving practice. Basically, we're changing the structure of our brain. Because, you know, as I'm sure you know, in neuroscience, what fires together, wires together. So if the parts of your brain that are about gambling are always firing, then your brain will always think about gambling. If your parts of your brain are, you know, you know, watching pornography, then you'll always be wanting to watch pornography. If your parts of your brain are multitasking, then you'll always, always be trying to multitask. You know. So what you do, what you think and how you are, shapes the architecture of your brain, certain parts of your brain. And essentially... We can, we can pretend that we're being mindful, you know, just, I'm just being mindful 24-7. But actually, that's not, that's not enough. We need, ideally, every day, 20 minutes, half an hour every day, to gradually rewire our brain, by, to allow it to stay aware, have a more sort of like universal, global awareness, and to just get into the habit of being like that, rather than being like this being all absorbed so ultimately yes you do want to just walk around 24 7 being mindful but actually to get there realistically from the state that most of us are in we have to do regular sort of static practice but it's a it's an excellent question i think it's actually a fundamental misunderstanding for almost all of us Objects using our own culture, so this is in like Las Vegas or whatever it's called. So, example, if my name were Jennifer and I were playing on the thing, whatever it's called, 
and then you you know you got fifty quid left or five million in your bank account, and you go to what? So the machine is programmed to recognise your recognise who you are, yeah. and if you've left without playing all your money, it will call after you to come back and play some more. Can you do an impression? No. <laughs> I'll give you 50p. No, not I'll just give now. You <laughs> Any other questions? You were talking about the practice. Does it help if that's like a regular time, or can you make it a different time? Um, you can if you if you can do it. I mean, the the reason that people do it at a regular time is because then it becomes a habit. So it doesn't necessarily strengthen it doing it at a regular time. Well, I mean, it does because it tends to, you, people tend to do it more regularly if they do it at a regular time. If you say, "Well, I'll just do it at some point today," then it's like, "Oh God, it's twelve thirty. <laughs> Got to get to sleep." So it's um, it's just easier to get make it a habit. Because what we want to do is habituate your brain into mindful patterns. Yeah. Thanks. Do, I'm going to sound really stupid. Um, what's the end result? Hmm. <laughs> so going back to question. My, my question, uh, if I was coming here thinking I want to know more about mindfulness, with, I think too much, I've got too much going on at the moment, but it's not that I need to be more mindful about what I'm doing. What's... For me, as, as an example, what's, what's my end result? Why would I use mindfulness? Or so this is a wonderful question. Thank you. <laughs> Two wonderful questions. Um, <clears throat> the end result for all of these practices is to stop suffering. This is the, the end of his deathbed when asked what the, you know, the summation of his teaching was. The Buddha said, it's suffering and the end of suffering. Why do we suffer? Why do we make ourselves miserable? Why do we make other people miserable? And how can we stop doing that? And so the ultimate goal is that you live in the world and you don't suffer. And by not suffering, you can connect with other people in a kind and meaningful way. That's the big picture. The problem with, problem with it is that very often when we start, <coughs> when we start doing mindfulness or meditation... We don't really know what it is that we're suffering from. We're not aware of our suffering because we're very dissociative. So there's a lovely story in the um, Krishna. Has anyone heard of Krishna Das, the wonderful singer Krishna Das? Hmm, there he's a Hindu singer, and uh, he was a student of Naim Karoli Baba, who was um, Ram Das's guru. And he tells this lovely story where his guru tells a story about how in India. Um, the houses are made of the, the roof tiles on the houses are made of mud on this particular part of India. They're made of dried mud, and uh, uh, the guru said that doing practice, in this case mindfulness, is like uh, seeds coming in on the, wi- the wind and dropping seeds on the roof of this house, and then the rains come, and then the seeds start to germinate, and they stand their roots down through the mud tiles. And then they destroy the tiles and they start to go down through the mud walls and the roots eventually destroy the whole house. But there's a forest. So this is, this is what practice is like. We start off thinking it's one thing and then ten years down the line you go, God, like I'm just a completely different person. Could you, sorry to interrupt again, I am a walking nightmare. Could you repeat that story again just directly, the... 
the line before the seeds on top of the house? So the pra- practice or doing mindfulness is like the seed that you drop on top of the mud tiles. And then the seed, with a bit of, you know, over time, with rain, the, seed, the roots of the seeds go through the mud tiles, through the walls, destroy the house, but you end up with a forest. So what you start off, you think, oh, the house is what's important, but actually, at the end of the journey, you like, the house was the least important thing. The forest is what's important. So when I say the end of suffering... We don't really know where we are now, what the end of suffering is, because we have a very limited idea of what happiness might be. But actually, if you practice more and more, you go like, wow, you know, over that hill, oh, that's happiness. And then you go, oh, oh gosh, it's over that hill. So it's a sort of endless process of liberation, really. That's the kind of so nature of it. Ruby Wax, yeah. who has two books in the top 20. Yes. <laughs> um, but, um, I went to hear her speak, and um, one of the things she said was that her depression was so bad, she'd been sectioned, she'd been hospitalised. Yep. Um, the pain of her depression was unbearable. By doing the MBCT in a committed way, it was worth investing that time in because living with the depression was too unbearable. Yeah. So beyond, but so as far as she was concerned, it worked. Yeah. In that she was no longer in pain from depression. Absolutely. So it Where it goes to after that, I don't know because I haven't spoken to her. But I'm assuming that having done that, and now she does all these talks and she's writing the books, that she's moving into another. It 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 really does. It's it's one of the as I say, it's one of the few that that show conclusive evidence that it works in relapse prevention. Mm -hmm. I don't know Ruby Wax's story, but I can't imagine that she started doing it while she was depressed. Um, I, I, well, because she, she'd had a number of uh, depressions and hospitalizations, and that's when she did um, a course on neuroscience, or yeah. understanding the brain, and then having done that, she thought, well, I still don't feel well or yeah. better. So then she did the Mark Williams course. Because when you're, really, when you're in real depression, you can't do no. mindfulness. Yeah. It's only something that you can do when you're in, in remission. Being aware, isn't it? When you're being, when you're aware of your emotions, you can find out what the triggers are, and it stops that reacting to whatever the trigger is. Exactly. So you can take away, you know, that, that awareness of it then, and and if you are suffering, just to allow room for that suffering, and it stops it from going any further. Then. Yeah. I think the problem with severe depression is that the fusing with your thoughts and your your emotions is so total that there's just no millimetre of space to, to practice. Well, Alice Morissette said something really lovely when she had an interview that she likes to meditate until she, there's no lies to herself any longer. She well, doesn't lie to herself. Lovely, that's beautiful, yeah. yeah. It is. Beautiful. I think that's, in an essence, that's how I often describe, if someone says, what is mindfulness? It's the opposite of being an ostrich. Mm. I think, sorry, just my, because I'm doing the eight-week course in, and I'm, so it's early days, I'm about halfway through. And when I started, I'd say I was in a place where I was kind of recovering from depression. Mm. So 
you know, it was good that this centre was a place that taught that through to, that made me feel like if I had gone somewhere they <coughs> didn't check those things or talk about it or had no interest, then I'd be a bit worried about the place in terms mm. of what this lady was saying about how do you know it's an okay place. Mm. So the fact that I knew that people that worked here understood psychotherapy as well and kind of the relationships. So, and certainly for me, if I'd what, tried to do it in the past in terms of trauma recovery, and that wouldn't have been right for me. Yeah. So I'd say it's definitely, it, you wouldn't replace the need for, if you're in a place in your life where you need really a different kind of therapy, it wouldn't replace that. Yeah. But for me, I mean, <clears throat> done that in a way, at this point in my life, it's been a really good thing to do. But what, in terms of what you were saying, I don't think, and this lady, I know you were saying about what, what will be the difference. For me, it's a kind of shift. So you maybe go into it thinking, it's good to have your intention about what you think it's for, but then you start to feel a shift, which is not exactly what you imagined. But in a way, that's good because certainly for me, you know, it can, you have this sense of control and. If you think you're going into it to control your world, actually, no. Mm. You're not going into it so you can carry on the same way, necessarily, because it could be that's what got you needing in the first place. Mm. So it's, I don't think it's about having tools to carry on living a stressed life, necessarily. But for me, it's been mental shifts, which, although challenging, and I'm still not a as rigorously doing my practice as I'd like to be certainly in time. I feel a mental shift in the attitude to myself, which also has made me open to other things. Yeah. So part of that, for instance, is opening up the really good stuff and good relationships and good things that I, are in my life, which, I could, you know, certainly in depression, you can't feel that because you're just... Mm. Yeah. It's all about the lack, in a way. Sorry, I'm now going blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. I think you're exactly right. I think it is, it's exactly right that we don't know what we're getting into, and that's a good thing. Mm. And also that it is entirely about the relationship we have with ourselves. You know, most of us are incredibly horrible to ourselves, almost all the time. This is why I always add, you know, it's being, being aware of what's going on without judgment, but with kindness. Because we're all... Excuse my French fuck-ups. We're all terrible, you know, misshapen you know, disasters. French. <laughs> French <laughs> We're all disasters when it comes to kind of like mental health in some shape or form. And actually that's what makes us lovable. And, the, and I, you know, my teacher, um, Reggie Ray, always says that actually you can't really do Dharma practice, sort of like Buddhist practice, until you've really kind of healed some of the basic kind of wounds of your life. Because otherwise you'll just end up using your Dharma practice to reenact some sort of like traumatic pattern. So another kind of avoidance, in a way. Yeah, well, it's not necessarily avoidance, but you know, it's inevitable that we will do that. But actually, we need to have a secu- got to a certain state of kind of s- inner safety mm-hmm. before we can do the brave work of mindfulness, because it is brave work. Mm-hmm. Yes.
to have installed curtains in our lounge and we have rather massive windows and we're not necessarily doing the most skillful things in there. So that makes me sound like I'm doing a bank robbery and it's very organised in there, but you know, it's just we're doing ordinary things. But do we need to worry to this extent? Would you, you know, within this context? I'm not sure I follow your question exactly. Oh my goodness, me neither. <laughs> Rick, can you kind of direct me in which which part you don't understand? Sort of all of it. What was the <laughs> what was the fundamental question? Should we worried? What did I say? Are we worried? Should we worry more? Yes, this yes, yes. Yes. Yeah. Should we worry about things such as not being able to afford curtains? in a house, which I'm, I grew up in an environment where I'm more comfortable with curtains. I don't know if it's right or wrong to have curtains, I have no idea. So, I, I, I get called cryptic sometimes. Cryptic, I love cryptic crosswords, but maybe you could... I don't know what it means, I hope it's a good one. Do you worry about that if you move to Victoria and beautiful windows without curtains? Do we need to... I would go probably a matter of taste. How much you like to be seen or not seen. Directly, yeah. Can we just relax? I think that's a very good piece of advice. Uh, well, what is the advice? I said, can you? Can we relax? And so, are you saying yes? Well, we can definitely try. I just ask you, if you are new to mindfulness, yes. so you're, you, know, you haven't done anything before, what would you suggest you begin, how you begin to learn more about mindfulness? Because you can't just, you can't do it on your own. No, I mean, people do. I would join a class. The, the centre here does a wonderful eight-week course, the Mindfulness Association. I mean, I have to say that the, the prolonged, the real benefits come from really committing to it. And that's why the eight-week course is great, because they say that it's 21 days of doing a thing every day is the beginning of neural change. So eight weeks is more than 21 days, I know that. Um, so if you, can, if you practice every day for eight weeks, then your brain will literally change. The synapses will grow in different patterns, the neural pathways will change, and then that will be a lasting change. And in eight weeks, it's extraordinary that the sort of enthusiasm that you see you know, in flowering in people's uh, their lives through doing the practice. So I would highly recommend committing. And also then you have the shame, <laughs> the shame issue of like, oh God, I'm going to have to go and talk to everyone else and I haven't done any practice. Okay, I must practice. <laughs> Nothing like that to drive us on. But I, w- I would definitely recommend doing it in a group. It really helps. Yeah. yeah. Your understanding comes, it's experiencing it, isn't it? You're doing it. Yeah, and what's interesting in the group is that actually the groups are really just to catch up on all the experiences of the week in between. Because so much it unfolds like, oh my God, I can't believe this thing happened in Tesco's. And you're like, oh, that happened to me too. And oh, this thing on the bus. And, and actually it's these moments in the middle of the week that actually really kind of fuel the course. Yeah. Great. Well, I think that's probably enough. No, I'm good. Thank you so much. This one was delicious. Still there. Thank you so much. Lovely to see you. Um, I am uh, say here t- here tomorrow and on Sunday, teaching a course about mindfulness and anxiety. So it's a more kind of therapeutically aimed course. Well, thanks for coming out on this busy rugby day. 
Sorry, if you, oh, sorry. Yeah. And if you wanted to kind of hear, I have a website, mind-springs.org, where there's lots of recorded um, meditations and also some teaching and blog posts and all sorts of things. So if you wanted to hear, read more about what I do, that's where you can find it. Thank you for listening and please do join us again for more podcasts from MindSprings. You can find out more about us and our work at mind-springs.org. That's mind-springs.org.